Okay, nice to be back with you. I've been gone about, thank you. I miss you too. I've gone about four weeks. I had a vacation, I had a funeral, and then a couple of weeks of coronavirus. Now, my voice is not 100%, but I feel, I feel a lot better than I sound, I think. But I got to marshal my voice a little bit, so I may sound a little low energy today. While I was sick, I read an article just a couple of weeks ago. The article's entitled, Deconstructing and Losing Your Faith by reading the Bible. Uh, the article is by Dan Kimball, and it deals with uh, the idea that a lot of people, when they first start reading the Bible, they encounter some very challenging accounts, like what Tim Hawkins was talking about there. When you really start thinking about the flood, uh, some of the students will start reading the Bible, and they'll read where in the Law of Moses, the eating of shrimp and bacon is banned, no tattoos, and yet slavery is not banned. It's regulated. Uh, they read some passages about maybe women submitting to their husbands, and they wonder if that's misogynistic. Uh, they'll read passages where um, what we're going to deal with today, where God commanded the armies of Israel to attack and even annihilate the Canaanites. And these are problematic, and some people begin thinking about this, and they wind up deconstructing and then losing their faith. So I was I was thinking about that, and, and I really, I believe all Christians should read the Bible and should read all of the Bible. Really emphasize here the one-year Bible reading plan. I practically harp on that. The one-year Bible reading plan, you just read a few minutes every day and you read through the whole Bible in a year. And a lot of us have done that for a long time. Some of us, not so much. And we do have some new Christians and new believers in our congregation and who maybe made a commitment in January to read through the Bible and are going to be reading some challenging things. Now, I'll say most of what's in the Bible is not challenging in that regard, and it's not hard to understand. You don't need to know Greek or Hebrew or have a seminary degree to understand the Sermon on the Mount. It's just all straightforward. But there are some challenging passages in there. And so what I want to do today, I want to take one of those what I think is maybe the most challenging as far as understanding the morality of God and the ethics of God, and that is when God commanded the Israelites to attack the Canaanites and conquer that land. It's called the killing of the Canaanites. This is one of the most challenging issues that people wrestle with. Now, some of you may have never wrestled with this at all, and nothing in the Bible troubles you, but that's not true of everyone. This is going to be an issue for some people Today, maybe some who are watching online. Theologian turned atheist Gerd Ludman writes, the command to exterminate is extremely offensive. Atheist Richard Dawkins writes, the killing of the Canaanites was an ethnic cleansing in which bloodthirsty massacres were carried out with xenophobic relish. Joshua's destruction of Jericho was morally indistinguishable from Hitler's invasion of Poland or Saddam Hussein's massacres of the Kurds. Now, I don't agree with all that, but this is the way this is being positioned by some of the aggressive atheists and skeptics in our culture. So I want to deal with that today. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 16. Here's one of the passages, for instance. Uh, if you're reading the one-year Bible, we're, we're going to encounter this in a week or two. Only in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you. So the question is, morally, how can a loving, good, moral God 
command this of the Israelites? That's the question. As Paul Copan puts it in the title of his book, Is God a Moral Monster? Is God a Moral Monster? So what I want to do this morning, I want to suggest six, I'll call them mitigating circumstances that we may or may not have thought about before that argues against the idea that God is a moral monster. And then what we'll wind up with, and I don't expect you to remember all these six circumstances, but they're in the manuscript. If you want to ask for the manuscript, I'll email it to you. I want to wind up with a basic principle to use as we're reading the Bible, and especially the Old Testament, when we come across a challenging passage like this. Just, there's going to be really one takeaway, one basic principle. All right, first mitigating circumstance, I call it a theological one, a theological one. And that is God's judgment, God's right to pronounce judgment. What God had commanded the Israelites was a judgment against the Canaanite peoples because of their sin. It's what we call a temporal judgment, as opposed to the great worldwide judgment at the end of time. A temporal judgment is limited in time and space. God pronounced these against various nations throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. But this one with the Canaanites came after hundreds of years of God's patient warnings to the Canaanite peoples. For instance, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, God says to Abraham, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, I mean, come back from Egypt. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So he wasn't going to judge the Amorites, the Canaanite peoples yet, because they hadn't become sinful enough. But 400 years later, after God said that to Abraham, God says to Moses, Deuteronomy 9.4, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It's a judgment for sin. What kind of sin were they involved in? Incest, temple prostitution, bestiality, and child sacrifice. Once you accept the fact, the fact theologically that God is our creator and we are creatures of God and we are therefore accountable to Him to obey His law and His commands, and that we have, in fact, broken his law and commands and rebelled against him, there's no longer really a moral justification or objection to the judgment of God. God is in his rights to do that, and only God can, in fact, do that. The wonder really is not that God judges, but that he provides a way through his mercy and grace for some people who want to, to be saved from judgment. Now, theologian Miroslav Volf was born in Croatia, and he lived through the nightmare years of the ethnic strife in the former Yugoslavia. Let me read to you what he wrote. He said, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? Well, God is love, and God loves every person and creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed, over 3 million displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? 
Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who was not wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because he is love. As one child puts it, God is a butt-kicking God. All right, so that's mitigating factor number one, and that's a theological factor. Number two is linguistic. Uh, this is the fact that Joshua and Moses use ancient Near Eastern hyperbole when they're describing the instructions to make war and the result of that war. It's just the rhetoric that was used in that day, but it's hyperbole. Joshua chapter 10, verse 40. Thus Joshua struck all the land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left no survivor, but he utterly destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Only that's not literally what happened. Later on, Joshua admits in the same book, Joshua 18.3, as he is addressing seven of the 12 tribes of Israel, he says, how long will you put off entering to take possession of the land, which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? In the early chapter of Judges, we find confirmation. There's still Canaanites in the land. Judges 2, 3, God says, I will not drive them out before you. Judges chapter 1, selected verses. They did not drive out the Jebusites. They did not take possession. They did not drive them out completely. In other words, these Canaanites that are said early in Judges to have been totally annihilated, stuck around. They're still there. So, what? Is the Bible contradicting itself? Did Joshua get it wrong? He did not. He's using the stock language that was used in that time to say that they had dominated an enemy. If you are rooting for a football team, we're in football season, you have your favorite team, I've got my favorite team, and I say to you after a game, my team crushed your team, my team annihilated your team, my team slaughtered your team. Are you going to, do you think that your team is laying dismembered and dead on the football field? No, you understand. That's how we use language. I saw the sunset last night. I saw the sunrise this morning. Well, that's not technically nor literally true because the sun doesn't move. It's the earth rotating on its axis. But that's a euphemism. We just understand that's how we talk. That's how they talked. In that day and age, the original readers of this record would have understood that. The contemporaries of Joshua in that time talked the same way. We've got examples. Egypt's King Tut, the army of Metani, was annihilated totally, but they weren't. The Hittite king Mersili, I made Mount Ashapira empty of humanity, but it wasn't. Moab's king Mesha, Israel was utterly perished for always, but they hadn't. Assyrian Sennacherib, the soldiers of Harim, I cut down with a sword. Not one escaped, but they had. It's just how they talked. It's a linguistic mitigating factor. All right, here's a third one. This is historical. A historical military factor, or mitigating factor, rather, is that Joshua was targeting military targets. Now, do you mind if I read to you for a minute from Old Testament scholar Richard Hess? Uh, it doesn't really matter whether you mind or not. I'm going to read this. <clears throat> Old Testament scholar Richard Hess has written a great deal about this called the Canaanite question. 
He argues persuasively that the Canaanites targeted for destruction were political leaders and their armies rather than what we call non-combatants. Even the stock phrase, quote, men and women, young and old, which occurs seven times in the Old Testament, appears to be stereotypical for describing all the inhabitants of a region without predisposing the reader to assume anything further about the ages or the genders. For instance, the language concerning Jericho and Ai, those are the first two cities destroyed by Joshua in Canaan. It appears very harsh at first glance. Joshua 6.21, They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old. Hess writes, the average person isn't going to pick up on the fact that this language actually describes attacks on military forts and garrisons, not general populations that included men and women. There is no archaeological evidence of civilian populations at Jericho or Ai or the other cities mentioned in Joshua. According to Canaanite inscriptions and other archaeological evidence, Jericho was a small settlement of probably 100 or fewer soldiers. If you've read Joshua, do you remember on the last day when Israel marched around Jericho? How many times did they march around on that day? Seven times in one day. What does that tell you about the size of Jericho? You can't march around Vero Beach seven times in one day. Jericho was small, and it was a military outpost. And Rahab is the exception that proves the rule. Okay, so that's just an historical mitigating factor that we may not have known if we don't do a deeper dive that they're attacking forts. Here's a fourth one. I call this a soteriological mitigating factor. Soteriology is a theological word. It means salvation. And what I mean by this is the fact that this annihilation command was not irreversible and it was not absolute. There were survivors. Uh, Rahab, speaking of Rahab, she was one, wasn't she? A Canaanite woman who was not destroyed by the Israelites. This is God's general posture, by the way. Jeremiah chapter 18. God says, If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster that I had planned. Now, some people sometimes will say, they'll challenge God. If, if I'm going to believe in God, he must do something dramatic for me. You could hardly find anything more dramatic than the parting of the Red Sea. And the Canaanites knew about that. They knew about what God had done in Egypt. God had made the headlines in Canaan by what he had done in Egypt. <clears throat> Listen to... Um, Rahab's statement, Joshua chapter 2, verse 10. It's the Canaanite woman in Jericho. She says, We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. When we heard of it, our hearts melted. No courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth. That's a statement of faith in Yahweh, the biblical God. 
She cooperated with the Israelites and she was spared from destruction. So did the people of Gibeon, the region of Gibeon in Canaan. They made a treaty with the Israelites. Now they used subterfuge and trickery to do it. But once that was revealed, Israel still honored that peace treaty and let them live. And we're talking about at least four entire cities in the area of Gibeon. They found a way to avoid this judgment through their faith. Now, there's an interesting passage in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are on a missionary journey. They're preaching the gospel. Their methodology is to go first to Jewish people and and then to Gentile people. So they've been preaching the gospel to the Jews. The Jews are rejecting the gospel in Pisidian Antioch. And here's what happened. Here's what Paul says to the Jews. Since you reject the word of God and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were determined to have eternal life believed. They were determined to have eternal life, and they believed. Rahab was determined to be saved from this judgment. The Gibeonites were determined to be spared from God's judgment, and with God's help, they found a way. Paul Copan even suggests that as Israel was encircling Jericho seven times, in that word encircle is the connotation of inspect, that each one of those cycles was an opportunity for Jericho to open its gates and relent. And we can't prove that, but it's interesting to think about. That's what he suggests. All right, mitigating factors. Here's a fifth one. I call this a teleological mitigating factor. Now, teleos means purpose. So this has to do with what was God's overarching purpose? There was a judgment, but it's also just to dispossess the Canaanites of their land so the Israelites could move in. Dispossession versus annihilation. Exodus 23. God says, I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among you whom you come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets ahead of you. Nobody's, nobody's really quite sure what that means, but I will send the hornets ahead of you so that they will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out before you in a single year that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. The point here is that driving out is not wiping out. Uh, Adam and Eve were driven out of the Garden of Eden. They weren't wiped out. Cain was driven out of the land. David was driven out of Jerusalem by Saul. And there there are more of these driving out, dispossessing passages than there are the annihilation passages. Just as in Egypt, through the plagues, God's teleological purpose, His ultimate purpose was to do war with the gods, the idols of Egypt. Likewise, in Canaan, God's ultimate purpose is to do battle with the false religion and the idolatry of those people so they don't corrupt the religion of the Israelites. Even the verbs for perish and destroy that are used do not mean everything the critics claim that they mean. Let me give you an example. 
In Deuteronomy 28, when God is warning the Israelites, it reads this way, It shall come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you. Perish and destroy, how? You will be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. They were dispossessed of the land. They were carried off into exile. And even when, if you think about this, when Babylon conquered the city of Jerusalem, those Israelites who cooperated with Babylon, their lives were spared. It was only those who resisted who were at risk. And likewise in Canaan. Okay, I call that the, the teleological mitigating factor. Now here's one more. And it's archaeological. Archaeological. Paul Copan writes, With its mention of gradual infiltration and occupation, the biblical text leads us to expect what archaeology has confirmed, namely, that widespread destruction of cities did not take place. Gradual assimilation did. Only three cities, really fortresses, were burned. Jericho, Ai, and Hazor. The archaeological evidence nicely supports the biblical text. Both of these point to minimal observable material destruction in Canaan, as well as Israel's gradual infiltration, assimilation, and eventual dominance there. By 1000 BC, Canaanites were no longer an identifiable entity in Israel. The Canaanite town shrines in Canaan, they were abandoned, which suggests a new people with a distinct theological bent had migrated there. That would be the Jews. They had gradually occupied the territory and had eventually become dominant. All right, so there Six mitigating factors, you know, linguistic, cultural, historical, archaeological, teleological, soteriological. I don't expect you to remember all those, but just the idea. Sometimes when you do a deep dive into one of these issues, there are factors that resolve in God's favor. So a general principle, when we read the Bible, and especially the Old Testament, we come across a challenging passage I would suggest this general principle, and probably most of you already do this, who've been reading the Bible for a while, and that is to give God the benefit of the doubt. Give God the benefit of the doubt. C.S. Lewis says we we should have an obstinate faith in God, like we have a faith in a good friend. That God has demonstrated himself to be a promise-keeping God who can be trusted. I have a friend that I meet with for lunch just about every week. If he was late one day to lunch, and after 10 minutes or so, I threw up my hands and I left the restaurant, only to find out that one minute after I left, he showed up with a perfectly good explanation as to why he was late, I would be ashamed that I had not trusted my friend. And Lewis says, same thing. We should trust God and doubt our doubts. That's how I approach the Old Testament. I read something that's confusing or doesn't seem to jive. I I just make the assumption there's some deficit in my understanding. There's something I don't know here linguistically or culturally or archaeologically. I understand we're looking back sometimes 4,000 years. We're looking at a distant mirror. But we know about Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the fullest revelation of the character of God. Now, he has wrath and he has judgment, 
But there's no question that his posture towards us is one of grace and mercy, a posture of salvation. So in Matthew 15, the Canaanite woman comes to Jesus, right? What kind of a woman? A Canaanite woman comes to Jesus. She wants healing for her daughter. Jesus, will you heal my daughter? And Jesus ignores her. But she persists. Jesus, will you heal my daughter? And then Jesus responds, well, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Not, not really you Canaanites. That'll come later. But she persists. Will you heal my daughter? So Jesus says, well, it's not right to take the bread from the children and throw it to the dogs. Hmm. You know, at this point, this Canaanite woman could have responded like some of these atheists and skeptics. Good grief. Jesus is biased. He's misogynist. Jesus is a moral monster. But she doesn't respond that way. She has a sneaking suspicion that Jesus is good and wants to give her what she needs. And she persists. She says, even the dogs get to eat the scraps that fall from their master's table. And i got to believe, although it's not in the record, that Jesus breaks into a smile at this point. He takes off the harsh mask. He had just been testing her. He says, dear woman. He uses the same term of endearment that he does for his own mother. He says, dear woman, your faith is great and your daughter is healed. She simply gave him the benefit of the doubt and her faith was rewarded. So, as Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 22, behold then both the kindness and the severity of God. 